commercial real estate has historically been a great place to park capital and to protect it from inflation over time. You know, we believe at Third Avenue that if you focus on select pockets within commercial real estate, the micro fundamentals are actually quite compelling. Hello and welcome to The REIT Report. I'm your host, Sarah Borkson-Keto, and I'm pleased to be joined today by Ryan Dobratz, Portfolio Manager of the Third Avenue Real Estate Value Fund. The Third Avenue Fund has a 20-plus year track record in listed real estate, and it invests in both domestic and international REITs. Ryan, thanks for joining me today on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time. So first of all, let's talk about the state of macro fundamentals in which the commercial real estate industry is operating today. What are some of the things that you're seeing and paying attention to? Yeah, in terms of you know fundamentals for commercial real estate, there are certainly a lot of you know concerning items on the horizon when it comes to the the macro side. You know, obviously the Russia Ukraine crisis is creating a lot of uncertainty. There have been a significant amount of disruptions, you know, in the supply chains post-COVID, which is leading to higher rates of inflation, frankly, which we haven't seen since the early 80s, which is in turn leading to uh, to rising interest rates. You know, with that being said, uh, commercial real estate has historically been a great place to park capital and to protect it from inflation over time. You know, we believe at Third Avenue that if you focus on select pockets within commercial real estate, the micro fundamentals are actually quite compelling, you know, such as those on the industrial and, and self-storage side, where the supply-demand dynamic is really quite favorable. And the shorter lease terms in those property types allows the property owners to increase rents serving to offset, you know, potentially higher cap rates down the road. So the, uh, the, you know, the macro certainly has some concerns on the horizon, but, you know, on the micro level where we focus, there are are pockets that are, are still quite interesting. And let's talk a bit about Third Avenue sector allocations and any changes that you have made or that you possibly plan to make. In terms of our, our sector allocations in the Third Avenue Real Estate Value Fund, uh, we have approximately 40% of the capital uh, invested in commercial real estate companies uh, with uh, a bias very much towards those in, invested in industrial uh, as well as self-storage and to a lesser extent, some select pockets of, of office and necessity-based retail. Um, we also have about 40% of the, the capital within the fund invested in, in residential real estate with a focus on uh, companies that have very strong ties to higher levels of production. Um, we have you know very, very significant supply deficits in the U.S. and the U.K., which is benefiting those, those companies that are tied into providing more supply and, and also the existing owners of single-family rental and multifamily are, are benefiting. So uh, we still have about 40% on the residential side. And then the remaining 20% of our invested capital is actually focused in some of the leading real estate investment managers and some of the large service companies that are, you know, taking further share in their respective industries, such as, you know, Brookfield Asset Management on the real asset side, as well as CBRE on the on the service and brokerage side. So those allocations across commercial, residential, and services have been pretty steady in recent years. You know, the average holding period for the Third Avenue Real Estate Value Fund is about five years. We're, we're long-term value-oriented investors, so we don't have a lot of changes quarter to quarter. But, you know, some of the changes more recently have been redeploying capital that we've received from some of the uh, takeovers. You know, for instance, uh, we were invested in 
Preferred Apartments, uh, which was an owner of Sunbelt Multifamily that recently received a takeover offer from from Blackstone at a, a very attractive premium. As a result of that, we uh, exited our investment and, and recycled that capital to some uh, of the other you know attractive opportunities we're seeing um, both in the U.S. As, as well as overseas. And if we could just step back a minute, you mentioned the residential sector. You've got 40% invested there. Can you talk a little bit more about the current supply-demand dynamics and how they're shaping up? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you look at residential, particularly in the, in the U.S., outside of industrial real estate, it probably has the, the best supply-demand backdrop in, in global real estate right now. You know, we've been big investors in the U.S. residential space for more than a decade now, and you know, we really started to invest more capital in the area coming out of the financial crisis, basically with the view that some of the excess supply from the early to mid-2000s would ultimately be absorbed, and the really well-capitalized companies that survived that, that downturn would ultimately take you know more share and, and be more profitable on the other side as there was demand for for new homes and you know that that largely played out but covid really accelerated things and sort of served as a step change within the residential space and so what we're seeing right now is you know a significant amount of demand for single family housing in particular within more affordable sunbelt markets um, at the same time that supply is, is very, very low. So companies that we're involved with on the home building side, you know, are doing record amounts of volumes um, and the companies that are, you know, playing a part in that process, you know, whether it be through timber, lumber, land development, et cetera, are, are also, you know, benefiting. So, um, you know, we've been big investors in the in the U.S. residential space for quite some time. You know, we continue to think it's it's very compelling from a supply and demand you know, backdrop. And uh, that's benefiting most companies that are involved in the in the space. You know, one particular area within our allocation to the residential um, space that could be interesting to, to some of your listeners is the U.S. timber REITs. These are companies that aren't held in a lot of other funds, but uh, they're ones that are selling more logs at higher prices as a result of what we're seeing on the on the residential side. We think that they're going to be able to generate much higher levels of cash flow and ultimately pay much higher levels of dividends. Timber is also a terrific place to be invested in an inflationary environment. In fact, if you were to look back to the 1970s, it was really one of the, the top performing asset classes. So that's one area that could be compelling for, for others. And it's in fact the, the largest allocation within our residential segment. Overall, our investments in Warehouser, Rainier, and Catchmark, all three U.S. timber REITs account for about 12% of our capital right now. Switching gears a little bit, I wanted to ask you about the the recently proposed SEC regulations covering mainly climate risk and wondering how you think those could impact REITs. Yeah, certainly. It's uh, something that we're following very closely, like most of the industry. You know, the additional d- disclosures will, will certainly cost a little bit more for, for some of the, the publicly traded companies, but frankly, bring them more in line with what we see in some of the other international markets that we deal with. You know, it's, it's something that, that we see ultimately, you know, coming through and probably giving investors and other market participants that are very, you know, focused on ESG items, some of the information that they need to make their, their assessments, which, which might not be available today, uh, relative to some of the disclosures that we see in in other markets. You know, in terms of the, the, their impact on the REITs, it will yeah, require a little bit more cost, require probably you know, an ESG-dedicated professional 
but also, uh, you know, it's, it, it's playing a, a big role in having an impact on the on the direct side in real estate. I mean, in particular, on the on the office side, we're seeing some of the large corporates, large multinationals, really only focus on on leasing office space and you know lead certified buildings. So, you know, that could accelerate some obsolescence for office owners that own older properties that maybe aren't up to to more recent code. You know, in addition to that, you know, some of the ESG items in particular on the environmental side is creating opportunities for for some property types. You know, on the industrial real estate side, we're at the very early innings of seeing some companies start to install solar panels to provide power to their their users. Ultimately, it could serve as a a power source for, you know, trucks that are are coming in and out of those locations. Prologis is probably one of the the, uh, early movers there. When you look at Prologis, they own about a billion square feet of real estate with their partners globally. As far as we can tell, that's more rooftops than any other private real estate owner or, or, or any real estate owner in general. So there, there's a big opportunity there for uh, a company like Prologis and other in, industrial real estate owners to um, commercially benefit from some of the things going on in the ESG space as well. And you touched upon this in an earlier question, but can you talk a little bit more about Third Avenue's global real estate focus and which geographic markets and sectors you think are most promising? Yeah, in terms of our, our global focus, when you look at our allocations in the Third Avenue Real Estate Value Fund today, we have approximately two-thirds of our capital uh, in, invested in North America. The other third is invested uh, internationally, and it's split roughly half and half between Europe and also the kind of uh, Asia-Australia region. You know, when when you look at, at where we are invested at in Europe, it's, it's very much focused on on the U.K., there are some some really high quality companies there. Finance really well managed. It's a very difficult place to to, to build new supply. So um, historically, commercial real estate owners in in the UK have been have been good performers in, in the continent. We we certainly don't have as much in, invested there. Continental Europe, that is. We only have approximately about one and a half percent of the fund there. Uh, a lot of the companies that we look at there, they have higher levels of debt than we would like. It's also a, a market where cap rates have been very low, given the uh, you know the, the interest rate environment that we've been operating in. So we don't think that there's a lot, a lot of margin of safety there, particularly for for those companies that you know property types where they can't increase rents to offset higher cap rates. So. Uh, we're very light in, in continental Europe, but when you look at what we have in Asia, it's very much focused on Hong Kong. Uh, where we own some really well-capitalized businesses trading at, at, at very material discounts, and they're unlocking value as they kind of modernize their corporate governance and their capital allocation practices. And then we're also, you know, invested in Australia, which, you know, similar to the UK, has been a, a great place to invest capital over time. Some really well-financed, well-managed businesses. You know, I would mention, you know, two areas from a from a sector standpoint. Point that we find interesting are really two sectors that are more established here in the U.S., but still emerging or developing overseas. And that's really on the storage as well as on the multifamily side. For instance, in the fund, we're invested in uh, Big Yellow, which is the leading self-storage player in the U.K., as well as National Storage REIT, which is the leading player in Australia. You know, those companies are earlier on in the, in the build out of their portfolios. They still have a significant opportunity to increase occupancy as well as rates. And so we think that it's very similar to the, the setup for storage kind of in the 2010, 11, 12 timeframe here in the U.S. In, in terms of investing in those companies. And then, you know, on the residential side, the multifamily sector is just not as established in a lot of these markets overseas. We're invested in this company, Granger, which is really the leading player in multifamily in the U.K., where they refer to it as the private rental sector or PRS. They own a, a portfolio of, of really high quality assets 
units. They also have a very valuable pipeline where they're going to be adding about 8,000 units over the next four to five years. And, and we think it's basically like owning Avalon Bay in the, the early to mid 2000s. So we're selective about where we invest overseas and uh, very selective about the sectors as well. But storage and multifamily are two areas that we find very interesting. Now, Ryan, we've covered lots of ground, but is there anything else that you think we should touch on? The only other two items that I would certainly mention are, are one, you know, we talked about, you know, some of the, the volatility or concerns at, at the macro level. And, you know, as a result, it's very important for people to focus on owning well-financed real estate companies, you know, whether they be REITs or, or listed real estate operating companies. That's always been our, our focus at Third Avenue. When you look at our portfolio today, the average net debt to asset ratio or loan to value ratio in the in the portfolio is less than 20%. That's as low as it's been in the history of the fund. You know, it's important to, to focus on those well-capitalized real estate companies that can not only withstand, you know, the ups and downs in the markets, but also, you know, potentially take advantage of them. And then, uh, you know, lastly, we briefly touched upon uh, some of the corporate activity in the real estate market. But when you look at what is going on in the private markets, private real estate equity, private REITs, other private real estate funds have raised substantial capital over the recent years. And in, in fact, I think when we began the year, there was more than $300 billion of uh, buying power in, in global real estate funds that were privately controlled. And as a result of that, they've got to put a lot of capital to work. And that's hard to do on that scale without buying portfolios or, or, or buying publicly traded companies outright. And so while we've seen corporate activity, some M&A activity pickup, you know, the past uh, 12 months sort of post-COVID, we, we think that that will accelerate when you look out over the next 12 to 24 months and should certainly benefit owners and, and, and managers that focus on value-oriented investments that are exposed to companies that control high-quality assets but trade at, you know, discounts to private market value for, for one reason or another. And, you know, historically, the um, private markets have, have recognized a lot of value in those cases. So we, we think that M&A picks up and that that will uh, certainly impact value managers like ourselves that have exposure to those areas that could be of interest. And are there any particular sectors you think might be impacted? We'll see the most yeah. yeah, I mean, we've we've seen a, a significant focus on industrial as well as multifamily. As we talked about, the supply demand backdrop for industrial and and residential is is quite solid. We haven't seen as much on the on the self storage side, but that is something that you know certainly could be more more of interest. And we also think that you know ultimately some of these funds will start to appreciate necessity based retail a little bit more. There's some interesting fundamental changes going on there. I mean, just with more people working from home, a lot of those centers have a, a more captive audience just in terms of you know day to day foot traffic. You know, in addition as industrial rents continue to rise, you're seeing some of these neighborhood shopping centers as well as community centers really act as, as last mile fulfillment for online orders. So, you know, retail is certainly not without its challenges, but there are certain pockets within retail that are potentially very interesting, the necessity-based community centers uh, in particular. And, you know, ultimately, we think that the private markets start to appreciate that a little bit more. Ryan, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, I appreciate it. It's, uh, it's great to catch up. I hope we can do this again. And to our listeners, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe or leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. 